0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, supporters of the former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, stormed official state buildings last night. We'll get the latest details. China opened its borders yesterday. We'll find out what that means in practice and how it might influence the global battle against COVID. Then.
1: You know, my father always told me it's not how you start. It's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people.
0: After 15 votes, Kevin McCarthy has finally been voted in as the US House Speaker. But with the number of concessions he had to make, just how strong can he be? Zimbabwe goes to the polls this year. We'll connect to Harare to hear how a key opposition member has been held for months without trial and examine whether 43 years since independence, the ruling party ZANU-PF could finally be heading for the backbenches. Plus we look into a report that dives into the facts and figures of representation in US museums and the international art market.
1: Essentially, if you look at black American artists in American museums, it's just 2.2% of the work that was acquired. What are they keeping for the rest of posterity?
0: With a rustle through the papers and a whirlwind tour of travel news, that's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. Last night, supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's far-right former president, stormed Congress, the Supreme Court, and surrounded the presidential palace just a week after Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva's inauguration. Oscar Gardiola Rivera is a professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College. He's on the line now. Oscar, thanks for joining us on The Globalist. Can you tell us what happened last night?
2: It's a pleasure to be with you, Jordina, and our listeners. What happened yesterday, uh, even in, in uh, Brazil, was uh, qualified by President Lula da Silva as uh, barbarism. Uh, either hundreds or thousands of uh, supporters of uh, Jair Bolsonaro who had been camping uh, uh, you know, in front of the uh, uh, army uh, headquarters asking the army to uh, perform a coup... Uh, attempted to occupy uh, the uh, uh, headquarters of uh, Congress, of uh, the uh, Presidency, and the Supreme Court in Brasilia. Uh, They were uh, finally uh, uh, kept at bay uh, or uh, uh, expelled from uh, these buildings by the army, but uh, here we see what uh, the radical bolsonaristas this far-right bolsonaristas fascists, as lula called them uh, are capable of Uh,
0: last week when lula was sworn in there was little violence but i I mean i gather this has been building for some time is it just in support of bolsonaro or are there deeper reasons
2: Uh, well the Deeper reason here, of course, is uh, what uh, is becoming apparent as the newer security risk in the Western Hemisphere—a kind of insurgency that is no longer coming from uh, the left, but from the radical right, the far right. Uh, you know, everybody has uh, uh, seen uh, the uh, uh, similarities between what happened yesterday in Brazil. And what had happened in Washington on 6 January 2021. Uh, this is to say that uh, uh, there is a uh, sector of the population who uh, uh, have uh, uh, taken to uh, anti institutional ideas who would be ready to uh, destroy uh, and destroy what they did uh, yesterday evening. Uh, the institutions of government uh, if uh, uh they are uh, they perceive that uh, uh, their views are are not uh, taken uh as uh, uh the dogma as uh, the truth that uh, Uh, they consider should be imposed by force if necessary.
0: And indeed, Bolsonaro himself warned of this when he was uh, in power. He he said there could be government rupture like the military coup of 1964. And if he were to lose his re-election bid, he said it could only be through fraud and Brazil would have worse problems than the United States did on January the 6th. So how personally responsible for this is he?
2: Well, not only he's clearly responsible for this. I mean, in fact, Virginia, as you uh, uh, were suggesting, he embodied that uh, uh, very danger. He was not warning against it, but uh, in uh, many ways uh, uh, already embodying uh, uh, those consequences. Uh, but uh, it is uh, also the case that there are other uh, members of uh, local government uh, who have taken to these ideas. In fact, the uh, Governor of Brasilia has been suspended uh, uh, by the Supreme Court. And uh, the uh, president of uh, the Workers' Party, the governing party in Brazil, uh, Glissi uh, Hoffman, uh, did criticize yesterday uh, the uh what she called irresponsibility, meaning in fact co-responsibility of the local government of Brasilia for uh, uh you know keeping a blind eye to uh, uh, what, uh, as you pointed out, had been building for uh, days, if uh, not weeks. The fact that uh, these uh, people had been camping uh, in front of the headquarters of the army, asking the army to perform a coup, to intervene militarily against the democratical uh, uh, will of the people, uh, shows precisely uh, the... Uh, Clear contours of uh, these uh, uh, phenomenon. Mm. It is anti-democratic. It is uh, uh, against uh, the will of the people. Uh, it will not stop uh, uh, at uh, any uh, at any at any cost in order to impose its will by force.
0: Now the army clearly didn't fall for it. In fact, they got rid of the protesters from the uh, three pillars of of the federal government. Do you think that they will remain loyal? What happens now?
2: Of course, that remains to be seen, uh, Georgina, but uh, uh, it is uh, likely to be uh, the case, Uh, among other reasons, because uh, there is very little international support for this kind of action. Uh, In uh, previous uh, weeks and days, uh, the uh, different governments of the region, including, importantly, uh, Washington, Uh, have made it very clear that they would not support uh, this kind of action. Uh, And again, as uh, I pointed out before, the similarities between uh, this kind of uh, far-right insurgency and that which has been brewing in the United States uh, are apparent to all, and that uh, uh, we can gather would include uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, Without that kind of international support is very unlikely that the army would uh, step in as uh, these protesters desire.
0: Oscar, thank you very much indeed. That was Oscar Guardiola Rivera there. <laughs> Yesterday, China finally opened its borders and relaxed its quarantine requirements for the first time in almost three years. East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, William Yang, joins me on the line. Uh, William, the lifting of restrictions was announced on December the 7th. That was following the widespread protests against lockdowns. How instrumental were those protests in forcing the Chinese authorities to reverse the zero COVID policy?
3: I think the nationwide protests have uh, played a very important role uh, of showing the Chinese authorities that the uh, civil society had a very entrenched and widespread uh, discontent about the strict uh, measures that the government have been using to uh, combat the pandemic inside China over the last three years. And so uh, eventually they were forced to, I think, uh, in many experts' opinion, basically move forward the timeline that they originally have for opening up. And so uh as we see in the fashion that they do it is that they all of a sudden just drop all the measures and then open China up and then let the virus spread like wildfire. And it's causing a lot of disruptions and also a lot of strugglings and also Uh, very tragic news across China. Uh, The death toll has risen and millions of Chinese people have been infected. Some provinces are reporting that more than two-thirds of their populations have actually already been uh, infected. And we are still seeing a lot of people struggling to get medications and the government is also not really sharing the actual death toll and the number of cases that are being reported every day in China. So uh, this is just a very dramatic U-turn that we are seeing in China and the Chinese people are the ones that are bearing the consequences of that.
0: Now that people from China can leave the country, are many of them doing so?
3: We are seeing some Chinese people trying to leave or at least overseas Chinese people trying to get their parents inside China to leave and be reunited with them uh, in other countries. And at the same time, we do see some overseas Chinese people arriving back in China since yesterday. There are scenes of Family members hugging each other and in tears after not being able to see each other for more than three years. But there are also other Chinese people in different parts of the world telling me that due to the very high price of the flights right now, they are not planning to return to China immediately. And they are waiting to see if the price of the plane tickets will come down a little bit before they plan any visit back to China.
0: And I wonder how this is affecting the region, particularly Hong Kong and Taiwan.
3: Uh, in Hong Kong, uh, we are seeing that the government has immediately opened up its border with China. And the traveling between the two places have immediately skyrocketed since yesterday. A lot, Again, a lot of the Chin- Hong Kong people or Chinese people living in Hong Kong have their family members in China, but they have not been able to see each other for more than three years. So uh, that is one of the signs that this is uh you know, the the, the cross-border exchanges being restored. But at the same time, there are concerns among uh, Hong Kong people sharing with me that they are very worried that there will be an influx of Chinese people going into Hong Kong and uh, basically buy up all the medications that they have. And at the same time, using up the medical resources, uh, further putting pressure on Hong Kong's uh, medical capacity. And as well in Taiwan, it is one of the many countries around the world that have already imposed strict uh, pre-flight test results being shown uh, by Chinese or anyone boarding the flights from China in order for them to be able to enter into Taiwan. Uh, so this is the precaution that Taiwanese government has adopted, which is basically similar to many of the other countries in Europe, including the UK and also the United States.
0: William, thank you very much indeed. That was thank William Yang you. there. It is 7.13 in London, 2.13 in Washington, D.C. Well, just after midnight on Saturday morning, the US Republican, Kevin McCarthy, was finally elected House Speaker after 15 rounds of voting. It was the longest speaker contest in 164 years. The 118th Congress, which has now been sworn in, features a record number of women and Democrat Hakeem Jeffries has become the first black lawmaker to lead a party. Well, I'm joined now by Scott Lucas, who's adjunct professor, at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin and a regular Monocle contributor. Uh, Scott, can you outline the long road to this eventual result?
4: Well, the long road, uh, or it seemed incredibly long, even though it was just four days, is that a group of 20 uh, Trumpist and hard-right representatives uh, forced 15 votes... Uh, before finally, after McCarthy made a series of concessions to them, uh, they relented. And McCarthy got the bare majority he needed to become Speaker. As you noted, you know, this was the longest process to elect a Speaker since 1859. And it was the first time, in fact, since 1923, that it had gone on for more than one vote. Because to cut to the immediate uh, path on this long road, the Trumpists and the hard right now hold Kevin McCarthy hostage, even though he is the speaker. Uh, They'll make a series of demands that will effectively gridlock the Congress. They'll make a series of demands for frivolous hearings that will start very soon about a supposed deep state that tried to overthrow Donald Trump. And the question beyond that immediate path, uh, the question for America's destination is whether the adults in the room who are not those Trumpists, not the hard right not even House Republicans, but whether other Republicans, including in the Senate, and whether the Biden administration can continue to govern despite uh, the obstruction of the Trumpists. Can you just unpack a bit more
0: what concessions McCarthy had to make?
4: Well, one of the important procedural uh, concessions is that at any point, a single representative, just one of the 435 House members, can call for an immediate vote of no confidence in Kevin McCarthy. Uh, so he almost rules under a sort of Damocles that, it you know, not just on a month-by-month basis, but daily basis, uh, he could be put under scrutiny and forced out of uh, his position. Uh, secondly, an even more important procedural development is that any single representative can call for a series of amendments on a single line item in any Government budget in any government spending bill, like the 1.7 trillion dollar package passed only a few weeks ago. Now that in, is likely to hold up essential funding for weeks or even months, uh, similar to the governor sh- uh, the the shutdowns we saw during the Trump era. Uh, then beyond that, what you have is this group of Trumpists who are demanding key committee uh, positions, uh, and indeed they have already got them. So Jim Jordan. Uh, the, the feisty, let's use that polite word, uh, congressman from Ohio is going to use his position as head of the Judiciary Committee for these you know, frivolous hearings to tie up business to, and promote conspiracy theories. But you will have others like Matt Getz of Florida, who will be demanding key positions, and even the conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was removed from committees because of her anti-Semitism. She now is back on a committee that ban has been lifted because in the end she supported McCarthy.
0: And so this small handful of election deniers, essentially, Denies. who've hijacked the, the party, what does that mean for the future of the
4: Republicans? Is the party uh, split forever? Well, that's up not only to how far they will go. It's not only how far, if you can find an alternative House Republican bloc, will go to defend the system, Uh It depends on Republicans in the Senate and indeed beyond Washington. Uh, Let me give you one powerful symbol from last week, Georgina, of what can continue to happen, how the system can work, how America can function. On Wednesday, uh, as the turmoil was going on in the House uh, and as McCarthy was looking more and more fragile uh, in Kentucky, uh, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, that's his constituency, was alongside President Joe Biden. Now, they quite often have clashed, but on this day, they were inaugurating a $1.2 billion bridge across the Ohio River. Uh, that was part of the historic infrastructure bill, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that the Biden administration passed with some bipartisan support. It's on those fundamentals, infrastructure, the economy, education, healthcare. that you ask yourself, are there enough Republicans who are not hostage to this Trumpist ideology, even an extremist ideology, but realize that what makes America great is simply the day-to-day business of protecting and progressing the lives of its people. And what's the answer to that? You know, Georgina, you and I have discussed quite often in recent years, especially since Donald Trump became president in 2017, what has been a polarized and divided America uh, what has been in America that's come under great strain, an America that even faced a coup attempt, let's call it what it was, on January 6, 2021, here we are more than two years later, and I think it would be easy to give in to the pessimism, to give in to the fringe minority, the conspiracy theorists, the disinformation warriors, the agitators. But I know that there are still a lot of good Americans at the grassroots levels who in their communities don't spend their time on social media pushing falsehoods don't spend their time denying the election. They actually are working in their schools, they're working in their hospitals, they're working in just small businesses uh, because they know that the future of their kids doesn't lie in the latest tweet from some whacked out far right figure trying to make a name for him or herself. And it's in those Americans that I have faith in a country that after all has stood for almost 250 years.
0: And Scott, Congress has now been sworn in. There is good news for
4: diversity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we have seen in a series of recent elections, we now have the largest contingent of uh, women lawmakers. We have the largest contingent of lawmakers uh, from different ethnic groups. In recent years, we've had the first Muslim representatives. We've had the first Native American representatives. We have more representatives from the LGBT community. Uh, And that ties into what I've just told you, that these aren't just exclusively Democrats. They're Republicans who give the House and the Senate their America. They are America, what it really, really means on the day-to-day basis. And so, yes, uh, as much as some people want to hold up diversity and inclusion as terms to be bashed as part of some supposed woke culture, the reality of diversity is that America's strength and American democracy, that's where its it's continued uh, salvation will lie.
0: Scott, thank you very much indeed. That's Scott Lucas there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. United States President Joe Biden has made his first visit to the US-Mexico border since taking office in January of 2022. The visit followed a recently announced policy initiative by the Biden administration meant to address an increase in undocumented border crossings. Israel's new far-right National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir has instructed police to remove Palestinian flags from public spaces. Israeli law does not outlaw Palestinian flags, but police and soldiers have the right to remove them in cases where they deem there is a threat to public order. And China's military has carried out military exercises around the self ruled island of Taiwan that focused on land strikes and sea assaults. China initiated similar exercises late last month after the United States passed a defense spending bill that included support for Taiwan. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Subway goes to the polls this year. It's the country of my birth and I've been involved in politics there for the last 30 years. I believe there's never been a free and fair election there, either because the black majority were excluded from voting by the white Rhodesian government or by Zanu-PF, the party that's been in power since 1980, oppressing the opposition. I have personal experience of this, being branded an enemy of the state for being involved in an independent broadcasting station. And although I can never go home, I feel lucky because those on the ground who continue to press for democracy are still being persecuted. Some have been killed or disappeared, many have been beaten up and still more are in prison. One of those incarcerated for over 200 days now, without trial and denied bail 15 times, is the prominent lawyer and member of parliament, Job Sakala. He's with the Citizens Coalition for Change, or Triple C, a party that grew out of the opposition movement for democratic change. Well, Fadzai Mahere is a constitutional lawyer and a politician, and she's the spokesperson for Triple C. She's on the line from Harari. Fadzai, it's, it's lovely to speak to you again. Uh, sadly, Mr. Sakala's experience is not unique, particularly as tension mounts towards the elections. I wonder if you could tell us more about the political environment in Zimbabwe and the road to the polls in 2023.
5: Thank you, Georgina. The political environment in Zimbabwe at the moment is extremely tense. Uh, It's permeated by a lot of political violence, especially in the rural areas. Just two days ago uh, we had seven elderly uh, citizens who were beaten to a pulp uh, in Murewa, which is in Mash East. Uh, We have a number of opposition politicians who are facing uh, trumped-up charges in court. We had 17 of our members who were incarcerated without trial for over six months, we obviously have the case of Job Sicala, who's been uh, in, de- de- in detention without trial now for 209 days. We also have uh, a growing economic uh, and social crisis. Zimbabwe has, again, uh, the highest hyperinflation rate in the world, 49% extreme poverty, uh, 60% uh, of children are failing their grade 7 or primary school exams. None of our hospitals have a cancer machine and a basic paracetamol, painkillers, not to mention other uh, medical equipment. So as you can imagine, uh, the citizens are very expensive around uh, the upcoming 2023 election, and hopefully, uh, you know, we can install a new government with ethical leaders who can really restore the dignity of citizens, who can restore a freedom to people, and again, uh, obedience to the rule of law and constitutionalism, which is something that we've not seen under Mr. Mnangagwa's government, which most citizens are unanimous, is worse than Robert Mugabe, uh, you know, and it, it really is a tragedy because there, there was a lot of um, global hope around you know, the fall of uh, Mr. Robert Mugabe, that you know, maybe Zimbabwe was entering a new era, but unfortunately, uh, all that hope has been lost and the citizens are now putting their hopes uh, on the upcoming election and hopefully that the opposition or the alternative will uh, you know, stand a chance. Obviously elections are always a tense time, there's a a lot of violence, especially when Zamu P.F. believe their backs were against the wall, which is why they do things like incarcerate an opposition figure like Job Sikala. It's calculated to send a chilling effect to anybody who dares speak out that we will throw you in and not give you bail if you dare stand up to dictatorship, violence and corruption.
0: Well, as you say, uh, Job Sikala is in prison now. He's faced arrest at least 60 times over his career. Why is he being held now?
5: Well, he's being held now because uh, a a regime... Activist, uh, a Zanu activist uh, by the name of Pius Jamba, murdered a triple C or an opposition activist by the name More Blessing Ali, who was a middle-aged woman who was a community organizer in Chitungwiza, which is just on the outskirts of Harare. And the regime obviously wanted to cover up uh, this heinous murder. She was she went missing for about 20 days, and when she was eventually found, she was found uh, at the home in a in a deep well, a deep deserted while at the mother of this, uh, activist and the mother is also a zanu pf uh, activist and her body had been chopped up into three pieces now where job Sikala comes in is he was the lawyer for her when she was missing doing the habeas corpus application and the family then contracted him or asked him to take on the case as a watching brief to look into his murder investigation obviously tensions were very high and the only way the regime could sort of quell uh, the demand for justice on her behalf was to close uh, uh, Job Cicala into prison, and that's why he's been there. He's essentially being incarcerated for the role that he played as a lawyer for more blessing Ali, who is a triple C activist. Uh, from a wider perspective, it's very clear that what the regime wants to do is to show that we will be violent in this election. Anybody who dares stand with the opposition will either be killed, will be incarcerated, will be persecuted, will be tortured, uh, and you know, they, they will stop at nothing. They will weaponize state institutions, including. The police, they'll weaponize the legal system. They have absolutely no shame, no attempt to try and make this, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, a, a, a competent or credible process. They will stop at nothing. Their backs are really against the wall. But on the part of the citizens, there really is this very firm resolve. And just last week, we saw over 10 artists come together in a collaboration to speak out uh, using art uh, and music and rap and dancehall music against the poverty and justice and corruption and citizens are saying they've had enough. So there is this huge organic grassroots movement uh, and they're coming together like we've not seen before over the last 20 years in Zimbabwe where people are saying no, we're not afraid notwithstanding these threats and intimidation we're not afraid to stand up to what Mr. Mnangagwa and Zanupia Doing. Even if you look at the the, the violence that I spoke about that took place on Friday against elderly citizens, you've got, you know, old people who are in the 70s and their 60s, you know, mobilizing their own communities in rural areas, which Zanupief has all along lied to the world and told is their stronghold, and saying, look, we want change. You know, we're not going to be bought over by, you know, handouts and, you know, cheap farm inputs. We want deep systemic change in Zimbabwe so that we can have freedom, fairness, and prosperity for
0: all. Fadzai, thank you very much indeed. That's a story we are going to be keeping a very close watch on. Fadzai Meheri of the Citizens Coalition for Change in Zimbabwe. Just gone 7:29 here in London that's 8:29 in Zurich and we'll continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, who's a senior partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Um The Times. This was a very alarming story with all its kind of deja vu-ness, if you like. (laughs) Uh, This is about Boris Johnson and a possible comeback.
6: That's right. Hashtag BBB, which stands for Bring Back Boris. This has reached a real crescendo in just the past couple of days. So we go to the Times that starts with a piece headlined, talk of comeback fanciful insist boris johnson supporters and what the times is trying to do here i think is throw a little bit of cold water on this groundswell of momentum behind trying to bring boris johnson back as prime minister and this is led primarily In the Houses of Parliament by Nadine Doris, who's his number one cheerleader, and outside of Parliament by somebody called Peter Crutus, who is otherwise also known as Lord Shoreditch, if you can believe it. And while momentum appeared to be building to bring Boris back... um, I think that 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 Johnson himself perhaps through interlocutors is sort of saying not now. And what the story tells us really at the bottom of it all is that Johnson is too smart for this. The Tories are headed for a catastrophic electoral loss and he won't want to associate himself with that kind of outcome.
0: Well, in the in the Sunday Times yesterday uh, there was a, a very big feature about this. But also there was um M- 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 Matthew Paris writing over the weekend uh we love um but talking about how there were whispers that johnson might uh go and take over the constituency he used to represent i think that's in derby i'm just trying to check that now um but the other story going about is that uh of course he's got a very very slim majority in his own uh constituency uh in Uxbridge. uh that nadine dorries goes to the lords her, and as you say, one of his great loyal supporters, her constituency becomes available. It's a safe seat and he goes there.
6: That's right. There's going to have to be some shuffling of the deck chairs on the Titanic to keep everybody in their places. And you're absolutely right that one of the greatest symbolic gestures of the electorate in the next general election, which isn't for quite some time, um, would be to unseat Boris Johnson from his local um, constituency in Uxbridge. And there has been talk that it really is anybody's guess whether or not he would be Re-elected there's a lot of personal um, vengeance to be taken out in the electorate against him, and so moving him around a little bit at least keeps him in the game. The other thing that The Times tells us is that Boris Johnson is making an enormous amount of money on the public speaking circuit. In fact, he hasn't shown up in Parliament very much at all, and that's another reason why he really wouldn't want to become Prime Minister again.
0: yeah, we think. We reckon. Uh, Let's go to Sweden now. They're getting quite annoyed with Turkey because, of course, Turkey is holding off uh, ratifying Sweden's bid for NATO membership uh, and uh, all sorts of demands, which Sweden's now objecting to.
6: That's right. Heavy on politics and diplomacy this morning, perhaps. We're in the FT that says Sweden warns it cannot meet Turkey's demands for backing NATO bid. You'll remember that Finland and Sweden applied to join NATO when Russia invaded Ukraine. There are 30 member countries in NATO, 28 of them have said yes. Hungary is a holdout that in a few weeks will probably also say yes. Turkey, however, has listed a huge amount of demands against Sweden before it says yes. And basically, the FT is telling us that Sweden has said, we're done. No more bargaining. No more concessions. We want in. Change your mind. Uh, Turkey has presidential elections in June. There is a NATO summit in July. And that's probably when we'll see something move.
0: What is it that Turkey really wants from Sweden?
6: Turkey is accusing Sweden of supporting or being allied with or just being too cozy with people that Turkey calls. Kurdish terrorists. Um, And Turkey wanted specifically Sweden to extradite a Kurdish journalist back to Turkey, where that journalist would most certainly face criminal charges and uh, a prison sentence. And the Swedish Supreme Court actually said, no, we can't do this. It's against the Swedish law. And the Turkish prime minister said, I'm sorry, but my hands are bound by the decisions of the judicial system here. And we're not sending this guy back.
0: Mm, because, of course, Finland and Sweden signed a three-way agreement with Turkey in 2022 uh, that was aimed at overcoming Ankara's objections.
6: There has been months of horse trading among all of these countries um, to try to get Finland and Sweden in, to get them in quickly. The rest of NATO ratified this with lightning speed. There was no question in any of the other parliaments of any of the other NATO member countries. Um, and you're right, Sweden and Finland have been been negotiating with turkey and and i guess what makes this story so interesting is that one of these countries has said we've had enough and has drawn a red line we'll see what uh Recep Tayyip erdogan the president of turkey what he says or does in response he's probably going to draw this out because it's an election winner for him
0: no, absolutely but what's the impact on nato ultimately
6: well um nato for the time being you know nato's busy with the war in ukraine Um, and NATO wants to expand its membership. Um, And these two Nordic countries who share borders, Sweden doesn't share a border with with Russia, but who are neighbors essentially with Russia, want that extra level of security that NATO membership provides, particularly Finland, which of course shares an enormous border with Russia. So that's on hold. Um, Russia's unlikely to become any more aggressive against Sweden and Finland in the immediate future. The rhetoric is already high. Uh, But those two countries want the NATO blanket on them, and that's not just happening yet.
0: Mm. Well, I'm quite sure that all of that, and NATO in particular, will be discussed at the Group of Seven meeting, which is coming up in May. It's going to be hosted by Prime Minister Fumio Kishida of Japan, uh, and the Japan Times has a, a piece on
6: this. That's right. Uh, the Japan Times and its very top story says, Kishida tr- kicks off trip to Europe and U.S. to pave the way for the G7 summit. So Japan is hosting the G7 in May in the town of Hiroshima. And we learned from this article that the prime minister's constituency is actually in Hiroshima. So this is a big win for his hometown and naturally a hugely symbolic gesture, of course, because of the background of, of Hiroshima and the nuclear bomb in 1945. Um, in the meantime, uh, Fumio Kishida is traveling the world and essentially setting the stage, laying the groundwork, if you will, for the summit. He's going to he'll be in London, he'll be in France, he'll be in Italy, and then he's going to the United States. He's going to be discussing a massive weapons deal with the United States and President Biden. And this is interesting because it all comes in the context of Japan um, and its evolving defense policy which some people see as as developing an offense capability. Um, Japan is increasing military spending, it's changing military policy, and it's bulking up on military hardware, a lot of which is going to come from the United States. So this is a relatively important global jog for the Japanese prime minister.
0: Mm, I mean, buying U.S.-made long-range Tomahawk cruise missiles uh, is is a big step. I mean, this is a pacifist country.
6: Well, that's what's under debate right now. And Japan's constitution, of course, does make it a pacifist nation. And Japan's defense forces, not its army, its defense forces um, have constitutionally been limited only to protecting uh, Japanese territory and not projecting that force anywhere beyond Japan's borders. You know, but we have China periodically holding military exercises in the neighborhood. North Korea shot a missile directly over Japan in the past couple of weeks. And Japan is thinking to itself, you know, the world is changing. This region is less stable than it used to be. And we need to step up.
0: And of course, the major flashpoint in the region, apart from North Korea, is Taiwan. Uh, and America has certainly put it more in the crosshairs by, first of all, Nancy Pelosi's visit. And now this uh, vote to increase bending towards Taiwan.
6: That's right. And it looks like there's going to be another congressional visit to Taiwan. And of course, this puts China's back up incredibly. Um, But this is very much in keeping with the United States, very public, very open um, financial, military and political and geopolitical support of Taiwan. And so it's in advance of this upcoming congressional visit that tensions are higher than even normal.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, let's go to the New York Times, because this has a really, um, well, it's a fun list, really. 13 predictions for life in 2023. What will the trends of the year bring? Take a guess, it says.
6: Well, we're going to go. <laughs> the New York Times says exactly that, right? you know, New Year and, and, and time to predict trends. And so the New York Times gives us. 13, maybe we won't get through all of them, but we'll talk about some of the more interesting ones, 13 predictions for life in 2023. Um, Georgina, you were recently in New York. Did you see some of its more famous wildlife on the streets or in the subway?
0: I certainly did. Rats.
6: That's right. So listen to this, Georgina. Um, The New York Times is predicting that rats are going to become domestic pets in 2023. Uh, And they talk here about how Um, New York Mayor Eric Adams has made rats public enemy number one. It really is pretty unbearable in New York, the prevalence and and, and the the visible presence of rats pretty much everywhere you look above and below ground. Um, And the New York Times says that since rats appear to be in such abundant supply, one of the trends that we might be able to anticipate in the coming year is people actually welcoming them into their homes rather than chasing them out of their homes and turning them into pets.
0: That's extraordinary, uh, because, of course, they've banned the sale of, um, I think, cats and dogs uh, in pet shops, haven't they?
6: That's right. There is um, a crackdown, not just in New York City, but really around the U.S. and and, and elsewhere um, about selling, you know, the, tr- the traditional pet shop. When you look at, you know, how much is that puppy in the window kind of situation and on the grounds of animal cruelty, um, those sorts of sales have been banned. Um, you know, it, it, it would be funny to have a cat and a rat at home at the same time (laughs) and see what they get up to. Um, But uh, I can't quite imagine... Sort of, you know, sitting on the sofa and petting a rat while I was watching telly or anything like that. Can you?
0: <laughs> They're not, well, they don't come across as cuddly, but I expect they probably make quite good, intelligent pets, don't they? I mean, one thing that was really striking at my, my recent visit to New York was the number of dogs. And this might have been because I was mostly based in the Upper West Side, which is sort of I don't very know, doggy. <laughs> which is very, very doggy. doggy. <laughs> um, but honestly, so many dogs. And of course, people without their own outside space, the first thing they have to do in the morning particularly in that awful cold weather, get dressed and take the dog out.
6: It's really quite a commitment having a pet in a big city. And, and what surprises me when I'm in New York is, is yes, you see plenty of what, what people call apartment dogs because they're nice and small and they fit in small New York apartments. It's also surprising how many people have enormous dogs living in their small uh, New York uh, flat. Um, but you're right, you see dogs in the park, you see them on the street, you see them you know, everywhere you go. New York is a very doggy city. You wonder why the dogs haven't yet taken care of, of the rat problems in, in the streets of New York.
0: But one thing I did notice with these, particularly with these early morning and late evening dog walkers, that the, a lot of them were actually just in their pajamas with a coat over the top.
6: <laughs> there's, there's something very strange happening in the United States. And, and sometimes you read about this in the British press as well, but people are showing up in public places in their PJs more than ever before. And you see this in supermarkets um, and, and, and you see this sort of in the aisles of local delis and what have you. And I don't know what it is, but people feel comfortable Going outdoors, um, not just temperature-wise and sort of body coverage-wise, but sort of showing themselves in public in garments that are typically restricted to, you know, more confined spaces.
0: I, I feel if you've got a coat on, it doesn't matter. But the New York Times has another <laughs> another um, uh, uh, something that... Uh, oh, I've completely lost the power of speech, Charles. I'm talking about slippers. This is another one of their predictions. So
6: the New York Times is telling us that 2023 will see the end of shoelaces. Um, some esoteric trends here coming up, but... Um, <laughs> (laughs) It talks about the popularity of Birkenstock sandals, which, of course, you just slip into quite comfortably. It's talking about the popularity of ballet flats. It's talking about loafers and other types of slip-on shoes and um, trainers or sneakers, as the New York Times calls them, um, with all different kinds of closures Other than laces. And so 2023, the Times predicts, and I'm not sure I'm ready to get behind this one uh, as I'm wearing laces on my trainers right now, um, says that laces are done in 2023.
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's one way of striking up a conversation with somebody, of course, is going, oh, your shoelace is undone. Another (laughs) prediction here is uh, that we will start talking to
6: each other more. Heaven forbid. Um, It's so funny that I I read this and I thought to myself, New York is famous for the fact that anyone will talk to you anywhere in the queue at the supermarket, on the subway platform. You know, just just anywhere that two people stand in reasonable proximity, a New Yorker or an American will strike up a conversation. The New York Times, for some strange reason, is finding this odd and saying that this is going to be a trend. Perhaps New Yorkers were being a bit more restrained in the past, and and there'll be this famous reopening of of that New York sort of generosity of spirit. I have to say there is one trend in this list, Georgina, that I, I sort of don't want to talk about as I'm about to open my mouth, and that is that the the New York Times is predicting the end of caffeine in 2023. Right. And the end of caffeine is basically the end of myself and almost everybody I know (laughs) because of my dependence on that particular ingredient. Um, But apparently we're moving away from caffeinated beverages. Why? Uh, Because we're being squeezed out by the herbal teas and by the green teas and by the caffeine-free uh, energy drinks and, and all of those other things that, that we do associated with sport um, and that, you know, the dark brew and that great smell and that fantastic kick and the delicious flavor of coffee. Um, I, I think we have to fight this trend, and you know, as, as energetically as possible.
0: Charles, I'm going to let you go and let Alejandra make you a fantastic coffee in our green room. <laughs> Thank you so much to Charles. Hecker, this is The Globalist.
1: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: It's time now to talk travel with Joanna plachinska who's European Airlines and travel correspondent at Reuters. Uh, good morning to you, Joanna. You may have heard earlier on in the programme we were talking about the opening up of China and how people have already started arriving and departing from there. But it's not going to be so easy, particularly for business travellers. Tell us more about that.
7: Good morning. Um, so what we're seeing basically is that There's going to be some slowdown still. There's going to it's going to take some time to secure visas for business travelers both into China and out of China. Uh, Basically, we've seen it in the past three years a significant slowdown in China of granting new passports, and a lot of people simply didn't bother to renew their passports. So now this you know this reopening has been quite sudden, and they're going to have to ramp up that renewal process again. And that's going to take some time. And also, a lot of embassies in China for foreign countries have been closed recently because of the surge in COVID cases. Uh, So they've also not been processing visa applications as quickly. Uh, So we're seeing that that'll be kind of an adjustment. So the ramp up the speed at which people are traveling abroad will be slower. Of course, Mm -hmm. traveling internally for the lunar year, that might ramp up as expected, but, but to actually leave China or come in will be more difficult.
0: And on, when we were on the line to Shanghai earlier, our correspondent was telling us that flights are terribly expensive coming in and out of China, and a lot of people are holding off until those those uh, fares go down.
7: I think we'll have to see how the, the global market for air travel adjusts this year, but we've been seeing in, in the last year, in 2022, that prices remained high for a long time. So it's unclear if those prices will go down substantially anytime soon.
0: Or if the service will improve, because uh, we're looking here at a story saying uh, that uh, European airlines could face steep operational challenges this year. What's that about?
7: What we're seeing because of double-digit inflation across the Eurozone and also in other European countries, uh, a lot of workers, a lot of labour unions are demanding more pay, and it's not surprising, especially since so many layoffs took place during the pandemic. Now, airlines and other um, other services have to really produce a better offering in order to tempt workers to come back. And w- we saw in the UK, in particular, strikes all over the Christmas season. Um, it really did disrupt travel to and from airports, and uh, and it's unclear if that's not going to continue, depending on how good the new deals for for wage rises are going to be
0: Mm, absolutely i mean i i did find flying into the 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 whole problem with ground staff and passport control i was very worried about that flying into Heathrow recently but actually uh automation made it easy e-gates solved that particular problem could we see more and more of the industry shifting to 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 automation
7: I think that's definitely one of the solutions that the industry is looking into, um, but not everyone can use an eGate. Uh, so I think, you know, either way, there, need, there needs to be human staff there. But of course, I mean, we're also seeing um, changes potentially in the UK in 2024 around bringing liquids onto, uh, onto flights and potentially reducing the time spent in security uh, because of new automated tools to to screen passengers. So there's definitely a lot happening right now to kind of speed up that process.
0: Yeah. Uh, Just before we move on, my pet hate uh, arriving at security and not being ready. Who doesn't have their laptop and their liquids in their hand? They should not be allowed to travel ever. They should be on a a global banned list. (laughs) I agree. agree. Um, Now, could we see then a return to normal travel this year and a smoother summer?
7: I think one thing we've been hearing from a lot of airlines is that consumers are not willing to give up their holidays. Uh, Even though there is inflation, even though the cost of living is going up, we're hearing all about the cost of living crisis, how people can't afford the same groceries they used to buy. I think after the pandemic, there is a sense that people still really cherish their holidays and their their travel plans, um, especially when it comes to travelling to see family and friends. Uh, So there is a sense of optimism in the industry that that will remain protected. Mm. I
0: mean, the the head of British Airways has has saying if we face the same problems as we did last summer, this summer, heads will roll. There is no excuse for not getting the problems uh, sorted. That's Willie Walsh speaking there.
7: I think this is something that... Every airport and airline is thinking about and planning for. There is a lot of debate about how different airports are dealing with this. For example, Heathrow has done a lot to make sure that there's no passenger caps to ensure that they're running smoothly. But then there's a lot of controversy still about Schiphol in uh, in the Netherlands and how they they still have passenger caps. They're still not able to kind of have the same level of passengers coming through. Um, And a lot of people just don't want to fly uh, through if the services are so bad. So there's still a readjustment happening in the industry, but I do think the entire airline industry is very committed to ensuring that the level of chaos this summer is not the same as last year. And that really... Passenger recovery goes back to pre-2019 levels as quickly as possible.
0: Mm. Well, of course, Summer Saturday, that's the biggest uh, booking day uh, of the year. It's the first uh, weekend after the return to work in January. Uh, what's What's been happening around that? Where are people going?
7: I think people are going home. That seems to be a priority still. People are booking their holiday travels um, for Easter, you know, for upcoming holidays. And I think we've seen surges for, you know, luxury, well, maybe not luxurious, but beach holidays, they're thinking about their summers, they're thinking about, about that already. And, you know, we saw in December, a lot of the airlines were saying that their bookings were solid um, for three, four months to come, that visibility was was really coming through. So people, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of talk about whether the weekend holiday uh, in Europe will be, will be dead. Um, but it seems that people are still going to places like Sicily or or doing their city trips, um, Maybe not to the same level as before 2019, but but it is still happening. Mm,
0: mm. Uh, it, it does seem, I mean, just just according to uh, Abta, their top 23 destinations, Spain's at the very top, followed by the US, France and Italy. And as you were saying, Sicily, fueled, I think, by television, uh, that uh, particularly white lotus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
7: definitely.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, Joanna, thank you very much for speaking to us. And if I could make one holiday recommendation, it's politics might be in absolute chaos. You really should go to Zim Zimbabwe. It's the most beautiful country in the world, home of the Victoria Falls, the widest waterfall in the globe. Uh, now, you're listening to The Globalist on Monocle24. And finally on today's show, how much has the art world changed in order to support works by women and people of colour? Well, the recently released burns Halperin report tries to answer this, exploring representation in US museums and the international art market. Monocle's Robert Bounds spoke to the co-founders of the report, Charlotte Burns and Julia Halperin, and began by asking Julia what the
8: overall idea of the report is. So the idea started in 2018 when Charlotte and I were in a bar, as we were wont to do at that time, uh, talking (laughs) about a sort of flood of headlines in both the trade press, but also in Bloomberg and the New York Times about how it was a great time to be an African-American artist. This was just around the time that there was a major auction record for Basquiat and the Carrie James Marshall show at the Met. And so it was sort of the time for trend stories as journalists are are familiar with that moment where it seems like there's some kind of cultural shift. And we were wondering, you know, if that was really true in the middle of the Trump presidency, At a time when it didn't seem like a great time to be a black person in America, um, you know, then the art world had something going that was extremely unique and we should figure out what that was. And if it wasn't true, then we should stop saying it. And so we came to the, the idea, having done a little bit of data work before, that the best way to kind of figure this out rather than just going on gut feeling was... Data. So we asked a range of museums, um, around 30 institutions, to share with us um, their acquisitions of work by Black American artists um, over the previous 10 years. You know, at the time, a lot of them didn't have that data, so they were collecting it for the first time. And what we found was that, you know, the perceptions of progress far outweighed reality. Um, And so that sort of set us on this five year journey of. Chronicling these collections to the extent that we could, Um, the second time around in 2019 we looked at work by female identifying artists and this latest report sort of brings both data sets together with a broader range of institutions um, and a broader kind of geographical swath of the United States and brings it up through the end of 2020.
6: Okay, so so it's it's a rigorous thing. I'm glad that the idea for such a noble pursuit came from you and Charlotte hanging out in a bar. I think that all these, all great, all great progressive ideas have to have to start over Negronis. I
8: think um, Charlotte maybe you can... to want to pursue something like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
6: Yeah, exactly. Let's do a report that no one really wants us to find the true answers to. No biggie. um Yes, it sounds like drink was required. Um, um Charlotte, maybe you can fill us in then on 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 the. Findings that those original findings and five years later, um after you've gotten used to to, to, to looking at these data sets, what's revealed in this in this latest in the twenty twenty two Burns halpern report and if you've if you've really seen much progress?
1: Well the short answer is no. We've not seen much progress. Um, they're slightly different We've got different museums. We ask some slightly different questions. So you can't do an exact comparison of the 2018 um, report to the 2022 one, because um, another way of saying that is that we learned what we were doing wrong along the way. And I'm sure that we've learned other things this year, too, that we would probably do differently next time around. So... We got to the end of this and this data set like Julia said it, it was a much bigger data set more museums more years and plus another data set that we do in tandem is looking at the market and that's an international auction market so we look at everything that sold at any auction all around the world um, and this year we look from twenty two thousand and eight 2008 to midway through 2022. And so we track the museum progress and we track those artists through the market. And we also look at galleries and we ask them to tell us some of the lead galleries, their representation, how many artists they represent and what that what those artists uh, represent in terms of revenue for the gallery. And so when Julia and I got to the end of this, it took us about two years to gather all the data. We had a moment of um sort of quite twisted humour, where we realised we'd done all this work and sort of ended up in the same place. We had these different museums, we had slightly different questions, we had different years. And we were really looking at the same thing. Essentially, if you look at Black American artists in American museums, it's just 2.2% of the work that was acquired. And so when we say acquired for a general audience, what that means is the things that the museum's buy or are gifted we're talking about two different things there it's anything that enters the permanent collections of these institutions what are they keeping for the rest of um, posterity what do do they think is worth saving from culture just 2.2 percent of everything that entered those institutions which is more than three hundred and fifty thousand works were by black american artists which is around a fifth of what it ought to be if you looked at the demographics of america as your kind of guiding figure, or just as a reference figure. For female artists, it was 11% of acquisitions at the 31 museums we looked at of female identifying artists, which again is around a fifth of what it should be. That's just a weird coincidence that those numbers are both a fifth. When we looked at Black American female artists, the numbers were even worse. They represented... so not even a full percent of everything that had gone into the museums, meaning they were underrepresented by around a factor of 13 if you looked at their population in the US.
0: And that was Charlotte Burns and Julia Halperin in there in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound. And that's all for today's programme. The Globalists will be back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.